You're listening to the Elephant in the Room Property Podcast, where the big things that never get talked about actually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia, and author of a new book called Auction Ready, How to Buy Property at Auction Even Though You're Scared Shitless. And I'm Chris Bates, financial planner and mortgage broker, and together we're going to uncover who's really making the decisions when you buy a property. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website as well as download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au. Please stick around for this week's Elephant Rider Bootcamp and we have a cracking Dumbo of the Week coming up. Before we get started, everything we talk about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances. Now let's get cracking. Well, today we are going to have a bit of a history lesson. We are going to learn about how the economy bounces back after recessions, depressions and various other shocks. Today we, we've got a blast from the past. We're talking again with Pete Wargent. Pete, we spoke to back in episode 24. can highly recommend you all go back and listen to that one if you haven't heard it. One of the things Pete is best known for is his use of data and the way in which he can translate into meaningful commentary and meaningful insights into what's happening not just in the property market but generally uh, on an economic sense. Now, let's pull all these things together but also go back in time and really understand what we might be in for uh, throughout this coronavirus crisis but also at the end of it. Welcome, Pete. Thanks for joining us again. Pleasure, guys. Always great to be on. Thank you, Pete. Um, good to chat. I think the, you know, we've all uh, given up on holding on to that. You know, we haven't had a recession for, you know, 50 years or whatever you like to say, maybe 20. But, you know, I think the, you know, what's actually so bad about a recession and how does, how do we actually recover from one to kind of go back to business as usual? Is this going to be like that quick bounce back and, you know, next year we're going to forget about coronavirus and nothing's changed? Or do you see something a lot more serious? Yeah, so this is a different type of recession from what the world saw 2007, 2009, because this is actually an environmental issue. Um, the subprime crisis was, um, as the name suggests, a financial crisis, and the, the fix to a large extent was financial in terms of monetary policy, fiscal policy. But the public health issue, uh, first and foremost, has to be fixed by keeping people healthy. So uh, the financial fix can come uh, alongside that. But ultimately, until the virus stops spreading, um, we've got issues there. So it could drag on for some time. And so let's say, um, you know, they do find a vaccine or we get it under control. You know, watch, you know, yes, this might all happen over, say, six months, right? Like, I mean, everything was fine at the start of March. I know there's rumblings around the world that, you know, this was kicking off, but no one here was really switching on to it. Um, you know, let's say in October, November, it's all back to normal. How long do you think it's going to take, though, for the economy to recover and what will it recover and what parts will recover better than others? Well, I guess that's the bull case, isn't it? If, if we follow a similar trajectory to uh, some of the Asian countries like Taiwan or Korea or Japan, maybe Hong Kong, Singapore, all those countries that learned from uh, learned their lessons from the SARS outbreak and actually took this thing a lot more seriously 
and more quickly than we did. If we can follow that kind of trajectory, then the recovery would be V-shaped and we would snap back very quickly. Um, The challenge would come if businesses have to go into hibernation for longer than, say, three to six months. um, Well, a lot of businesses will struggle with the overhead. uh, They'll start to lose revenue, profits, and then that's when unemployment could really spike. Um, So I think what, I mean, this is a very fluid situation. It's changing by the day, but I, I suspect the base case strategy will now be go for the short, sharp shutdown and just try and iron this thing out once and for all. Uh, and then try to open up again relatively soon because the longer um, a modern economy is shut down for, well, the the greater the pain. So you made an interesting point there. It's not so much the initial sort of, you know, jump in unemployment, let's say from 5 to 10%, which may have already been baked in. You're saying it's more the case if we go from 10 to 20% sort of thing if we, do, we don't really learn and get, get control of corona, I guess. Yeah, that's exactly it. So the, the government has obviously preempted this alongside um, the other policymakers. And what they're trying to do is keep people um, employed. So we've seen a lot of stood down workers in retail and tourism and hospitality. But a lot of those workers can go straight back to doing similar roles or the same role if they can keep the shutdown to a relatively short period. If it drags on for longer, of course, they'll be made redundant and then uh, the rebound will take much longer as well. Well, there's a couple of things here. First of all, I'm interested to know if there's any precedent for this sort of hibernation. Uh, not a modern precedent. If you go back to um, World War One, World War Two, there were there've been global pandemics before, um, but I think it's very questionable. I think when you're starting to compare to things from pre-war eras, simply because the policy responses today will be much more dramatic and much quicker. So, if you think. The response in 2007-89 was much more dramatic uh, than it was in 1929. And in fact, this time around, uh, central banks, they won't die wondering. They've gone straight to zero interest rates, straight to QE. Um, there's all of those other unconventional measures that have kicked into gear straight away, plus massive fiscal stimulus all the way around the world. So, I, I mean, there have been global pandemics. If you go back to uh, some of the flu influenza outbreaks um, of decades ago, but I'm not really sure how comparable those shutdowns might be. Yeah. To that. What, a world, what about World War Two? Is that more uh, aligned to this one? You know, I mean, it's you had rationing, you had um, a lot of the workforce, a, a lot of the things that obviously or businesses that, that might have been luxuries for argument's sake would have been wound up, and, and the essential services would have been would have been ramped up. So, are there some parallels that can be drawn from that? Yeah, so I suppose uh, some interesting history lessons there because um, uh, the world obviously went through a very very challenging period through the Great Depression. Uh, but what you often find is when you have a war, there's um, a lot of output actually increases in yeah. terms of armaments and um, obviously there was conscription across Europe. And um, so somewhat different dynamic. Um, but as you mentioned in in Britain, um, I mean, my dad is not even that old, but he can remember rationing going on all the way through until the 1950s because of the, the recovery was pretty slow and then we had the, the baby boom generation. So I guess that's it. A, a global war is a different thing from, from this. This is just a pure uh, sort of health outbreak and it will need ultimately, as Chris said, um, cures, treatments, vaccines, whatever comes around. So you've um, probably been watching the news like I have um, and seeing what the government's been doing in terms of their stimulus one, two, three 
Have you? Do you think they're doing enough, or should be doing more or less, or the right policies, or you know, someone who kind of thinks about these things? Have you got any other ideas that they should be doing? I think uh, so far so good. Uh, I think the in the early stages there was a few of us saying, well. Uh, some of these policies are sort of a good starting point in terms of credit facilities and loans for small businesses, but there was no actual cash flowing. That was the big challenge in the first couple of weeks. Now, obviously, since then, uh, they've announced the wage subsidy, which uh, follows a slightly different model from what we saw in Britain. Uh, but I think that's a really good step in the right direction because through no fault of their own, there are many people who have been stood down from their roles and they need uh, the terminology they like to use is uh, a, a bridge needs to be built to the other side of this and a wage subsidy, expensive though it is, is probably a really good starting point. Now, whether a fourth stimulus package is needed, uh, it may well be, but I guess you know, this is a rolling outbreak and they can only um, adjust policy as we go. Yeah, I think um, one of the things I love about your commentary is that uh, you do try to sit in two cities. Maybe you do that for tax purposes, I don't know. But, um, <laughs> it doesn't you know, matter, tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> Where are you domiciled? But um, you don't want to be domiciled in the UK, though. Too much inheritance tax, exactly, right? Yeah. Yeah, so uh, your tax resident, domicile here, tax resident probably over there. But anyway, um, <laughs> you do have a lot of learnings with um, what's happening in the UK that you can bring here. Like, I think, you know, global cities like London, there's lots of things that are happening in that, say, property market that we can kind of understand the Australian market a lot better. I know I do after living there. What are some of the things you've seen happening in the UK property market already? Because I'd say they're a little bit ahead of us um, that you potentially could see happening here. Yeah, so I suppose you're right. One of the dubious advantages of being British is that we have been through recessions. In fact, we've been through a couple of brutal recessions uh, in my adult lifetime and even before that um, when I was growing up because it's a very much a boom-bust economy, Britain. That's just the way it's been, especially credit-driven as well. Um, so it does give me some comfort to know that um, although these things are never uh, much fun when you're going through them, eventually and often when people have all, all but given up hope, it seems, that suddenly for no apparent reason things start to look up again. And Australia is pretty lucky in the sense that we do have a number of automatic stabilizers. So we've seen, obviously, the interest rates have been cut, but the Aussie dollar will probably fall to the lowest level in 20 years or so. Uh, plus, we've got relatively low government debt. So there's a, there's a few different things which will kick in, plus QE. Um, so in Britain, we, I mean, even not that long ago, between 2007 and 2009, we had a very sharp property downturn, and it felt like a very desolate place, particularly... I think late 2008, uh, 2008 and early 2009, it just felt like uh, this thing would never end. And yet, yeah. without warning almost, uh, second quarter of 2009, suddenly things just started snapping back. So um, now the recovery was, um, wasn't even. London sort of came roaring back and prices all but doubled again. Uh, but a lot of the regions were very slow to recover. Like I'm, I'm talking 10, 12 years. So it, was, it wasn't an even recovery. Uh, so I think what I've seen in Britain so far, uh, as you know, Chris, a very different uh, system there in terms of transactions. A lot of sales are falling over uh, because uh, they, they often have properties sell in a chain. And if somebody drops out halfway through the chain, the whole thing falls over. Uh, so probably about two-thirds of transactions are now just not happening as a result of that. 
the earliest indicators seem to show, uh, well, buyer demand has probably dropped by about 40% through March, and I think maybe more like 60% over the quarter. Um, now, I guess the other side of that is a lot of sellers are looking uh, less likely to list as well. So to a certain extent, things are just going into a bit of a deep freeze. Um, so we'll just have to see how it plays out. Yeah, I mean, the whole uh, interesting point about the UK, I was in the UK from 2007 to 11. I know you said that the property market in London really recovered, and um, but, you know, lots of reasons around the UK didn't. And even the London economy, I mean, the, the vibe or the, you know, the businesses opening and have the confidence to open, um, it takes years for that confidence to come back. So all the, the businesses that don't make it through this gap, um, you know, it doesn't mean they're going to go and start a new business as soon as things ramp up again. Um, you know, things take a while to recover. Is that kind of your observation too? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, I think um, it. Uh, people have a, a, a sort of a hope that things will just be straight back to normal because the economy wasn't doing too badly um, late last year. But it, it may well be, particularly in some of those um, industries that we mentioned, things like tourism, it could be a long, slow haul for that to recover. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I suppose um, when things do recover, uh, there's a number of factors that are that will be a positive for the economy and real estate. So we'll see the lowest interest rates in a generation. We'll see that for years to come, I guess. We'll see lower dollar, and there'll be a lot of new money uh, sloshing around the economy. So government stimulus. Uh, I think governments will be taking a much more hands-on role in the economy. So. I guess there's a few things that when we do come out the other side will be very stimulatory, uh, but it's uh, the timing of that is very uncertain at the moment. It's funny we talk about um, some industries where, I mean, you mentioned it earlier, where say tourism or hospitality, where there will be jobs available when we get through this and when people start spending money again. And certainly you can see hospitality, it's a fairly low cost to entry compared to tourism, for instance. I mean, airlines, a few of those might go broke. Um you know, massive costs of all that infrastructure or even a hotel or resort or, um, you know, so I guess and they're a lot more expensive to prop up and keep in business when they've got zero revenue. Um, I guess the fallout in that that sector will be interesting. Is that a word for it really? But, I mean, I'm not so confident that, you know, there'll be that much still standing at the end of it. Yeah, look, I think the, the airlines will, will look to, to towards bailouts if they can get them. Uh, whether or not the government actually takes equity in those businesses, they probably yeah. should, but that's a real political issue. I think um, probably one of the most interesting things for Australia is that over certainly through the mining boom years and then even beyond that, we've been running a very high rate of immigration, uh, plus uh, we've seen record high uh, short-term arrivals, so tourists and people coming to visit family and so on. So I guess one of the big questions for me is at what point does that get switched back on? Because yeah. I, I think when we come out the other side, uh, there'll probably be less globalization. There'll be more mm. sort of home country-based production and things like that. But Australia has kind of relied on this high rate of immigration, especially from Asia in recent years. Uh, now, I guess this is above my pay grade, but how do you even... How do you even begin to open the borders again? Um, are there 15-minute uh, testing kits that can be applied? I mean, it, it sounds very draconian, but I can't imagine a scenario anytime soon where the borders are just open to all comers again when you've got a global pandemic. So that, that's a real question mark for me is how long 
can it be before people are able to travel freely again? Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, that's the thing that's been driving our economy for you know decades, really, isn't it? It's immigration. It keeps our population younger. That's you know, if you come here in your twenties, at some you know, you firstly you start you know consuming Australians, um, especially if you're trained up and you're a skilled migrant, um, straight into the workforce. You start paying taxes. You start consuming. You know, a few years later, you start buying a house. You start to fill that house. Um, or if you're a student, you kind of fund the universities and. I think, um, you know, as a per capita, our GDP hasn't been growing. It's just that our economy is growing because we keep importing people. And I think that's the big question, isn't it? Can we, do people around the world want to still come? Because the government's definitely want to encouraging that. Um, they're going to need to encourage that. It's just whether Australia is still seen as the place that uh, people want to migrate to. Or yeah. do, do we need to actually encourage more local production again instead of globalisation and trying to out, you know, carve off you know whole entire industries the that problem with australia our wages are just too you high aren't I mean? they yeah but this will change everything won't it i mean this is this is actually you know our economy the way it's been functioning obviously isn't going to be able to continue in the same way i mean do we think really that we're just going to go back to the way it was well that's the hope i, I think um, one of the interesting aspects is um now nobody believes the numbers out of china are the best of times but obviously what they're reporting is no new cases of the virus uh, the latest manufacturing gauges seem to suggest that the the factories are rumbling back to life and i mean who knows at this point in time but i wouldn't be at all surprised if china unleashes uh, trillions of dollars in stimulus so if that happens then yeah. the demand for our commodities uh, just like it did uh, post-GFC, will be through the roof again. So th- there is a scenario where Australia can coattail it uh, out of recession, um, assuming China's um, actually is getting back to business. Um, but, yeah, in terms of uh, you know things like auto production, I think that's gone for Australia. I think we'll produce a lot of our own food potentially, but uh, in terms of some of those uh, other manufacturing businesses that got hollowed out. It's hard to see how they come back because, as Chris said, it's hard to compete when you've got high wages. I think food for yeah. me is a big one. I mean, there's been various anecdotal stories of, you know, particularly Chinese uh, interests buying up our food uh, resources, you know, like dairy farms and et cetera, et cetera. Even the water table I've been hearing. So, and look, I'm only going on what I've been reading and what I've been hearing about, but I, I think we have to protect it more. This is actually about our economic, our actual security as a nation. Um, will it change an attitude? And this is what I'm wondering. Will the attitude towards that become a little bit more cautious? Uh, probably, yes. I think that's, that's one of the scenarios I've been uh, bouncing around is that globalisation, globalization as we knew it is probably dead and it will take a long time to recover. I think there, there, was, there were issues in Europe anyway with uh, yeah. the, the Euro uh, bloc falling apart and the Brexit vote so, and this might just accelerate things. Um, yeah, but I, I think in the, in the nearer term, I'm, I'm interested in the, just the logistics of day-to-day life because if I read it correctly, New South Wales looks like it's heading into some kind of a lockdown scenario for the next three months so uh, veronica in terms of logistics what does that mean for things like open homes and auctions and can people still do things like building and pest or furniture removal is, is all this stuff just grinding to a halt now well it's interesting 
I've been looking at the um, the actual legislation on this because, of course, all this, these, these announcements get made and then it's up to the individual states to legislate for it. Um, there's 16 reasons why you can lose, why you can leave home, right? And one of them includes, or, or I should say, um, and also, you know, and not abide, or there's reasons why you, the two-person rule won't apply. And one of them is moving house or office. So, you know, because we were all thinking, well, God, you know, you're not going to be able to have a remove list. You can't have, you know, two people in a truck. They're not sitting <laughs> a metre and a half apart. Um, you know, the, the owner, the new buyer of the home moving into the home won't be able to be inside the home or outside the home at the same time as a removalist. I mean, it, it logistically, absolute nightmare. But, no, that's actually been noted as a specific reason that you can you can go outside of these um, restrictions. The, the viewing of homes is interesting because uh, an agent and one buyer at a time can be inside the premises or outside the premises. So from what I understand, that means if there's a husband and wife or a wife and a wife or a husband and husband, that um, one of those partner can go through with the agent and then they tag team. Um, which means for me, for instance, with my clients, I can't actually inspect a property at the same time as my clients. So we've put a process into our business, how we're going to work around this. Agents also need to qualify their buyers a hell of a lot harder because let's face it, it's completely inefficient to show every single buyer who might want to see a property, the property, um, the amount of time it takes to actually show a couple through separately, you know, um, so we're seeing more video, we're seeing more virtual tours, we're seeing more even agents doing walkthroughs with their iPhones um, because they need to be able to qualify buyers better and the buyers need to be able to qualify whether or not they really want to see the property. So I think there's going to be some efficiencies that might come into the whole the whole marketing of property. Yeah. But the problem from a buyer's point of view is that they somebody just starting in the market won't have the opportunity to go and research the market in the same way that they would have before. So for buyers that haven't actually... Um, got their head around what they might want to buy, they might still be able to buy, but really how educated are they going to be? And that's probably going to be a hurdle that they won't bother uh, trying to to uh, leap until it, this is all through, you know, over and done with. Yeah, until confidence returns. I think that's generally what the research shows is that if you get an external shock like this, then initially it's just going to impact transaction activity, mm. not house prices. Yes. Um, housing prices generally fall when you get an economic shock. Now, we could easily get that if this drags on for six months because that's when you get into the forced seller scenario. But I would say for a lot of people at the current time, there's not much confidence on the buy side. A lot of sellers just might well this is all too hard and I, I think CoreLogic has some leading indicators in terms of listings and they seem to be dropping already so uh, I guess in the short term we'll see a drop in transactions but the longer it drags on then that would probably feed into prices and I, I guess what everyone's really interested to know is well, will there be a dramatic fall in prices and I guess historically you'd say there's, there's only really four things that cause that that's if credit dries up that's that's obviously an issue that we saw in Britain through the GFC and the Reserve Bank and the government's got right on the front foot here to, to ensure that credit keeps flowing. So they've essentially created a funding facility for the banks. Uh, if rising borrowing costs can cause a crash, which we're not going to see, oversupply, well, that's kind of washed through now. So the, the big one is just unemployment. If, mm. if you get a, a real big spike in unemployment, that's when you get forced sellers and they have to uh, take lower prices and things cascade lower. So... I guess if you're having to look 
for any one indicator, it's just let's see what happens to unemployment over the next six months. Yeah, and I think we need to go really granular on that because, you know, this is, you know, with the market and unemployment levels at a national level, we could see it go from, you know, 5 to 10%, let's just say, round numbers. But in some areas, it could already have been at 8 or 9%. Um, you know, different states have different unemployment rates, right? Yeah. And if, if you find that, you know, some states get hit harder than others and some regions get hit harder than others, that's where you're going to get a lot of huge amount of the population's unemployed, a huge amount of the population won't be able to afford their mortgage repayments. And so you get a massive shot to demand, but also an increase of supply with people trying to get out of their properties. Um, you know, have you got any ideas of where that is potentially at higher risk than other areas? Like, you know, I'd imagine tourism areas like Cairns, for example, um, you know, could be, you know, get a real hit. Yeah, and possibly uh, up here in Noosa, I guess the, the, the tourism exposed areas. I think Noosa, to be fair, there's a lot of retirees and people with second homes. And you know, I guess those so quite often a second home is the first thing to go in a crisis. So uh, I think, uh, yeah, areas that have a tourism exposure will be uh, will struggle, at least in the short term. I guess in the medium term, the lower dollar will help them bounce back. Um, yeah, I, I think if we get traveling together, right? If, if people travel, if we've got the confidence to go to airports and jump on planes and not get this illness, I guess. Well, yeah, yeah, and I think uh, I mean that that is the the stats are evolving by the day. I mean, uh, touch wood, the the figures for Australia look relatively promising at this stage. But you know, you look at what's happening in the US and and people still traveling around Florida and you think, well, that's not an issue that's going to be fixed in a few weeks. That's going to drag on for months and months. So, yeah, as you said, granular, it's a granular issue. And I think Australia is going to have to go harder and harder on tightening up the measures just to stop the spread. And uh, I guess the sooner they can get it under control, the sooner we can start thinking about a sensible reopening of the economy. I've got two questions. Um, first of all, on the demand side in terms of property, we've, you know, some anecdotally I've been hearing um, from banks that there's record numbers of loan applications and not just for refinancing. So have you got any access to data on that that sort of shows that underpinning all this is actually a desire and a willingness for people to get into the property market or continue to be in the property market? Um, I always say when, when it comes to the you know, real-time information. The best source of, of information is guys, is guys like Chris, the, the mortgage brokers, because they get the first read on this stuff. You know, when people pick up the phone and say to the broker, I'm thinking about making a move. So, look, I, I've heard mixed reports from brokers. So, yeah, I, I, I don't know for sure. I, I imagine an awful lot of people are, are taking measures to refinance and potentially looking at payment holidays or know just maybe even just trying to get their rates down or whatever it may be i don't know about the buyer demand and chris would probably have a much better read on that than i do i was was wondering actually whether there's actually any uh reliable source of data on applications that's that's i guess CoreLogic runs a leading indicator index which is based on um inquiries and so on Uh, so that's probably the best but i i guess one of the things is with those figures is that they're massively seasonal um so if you find through December and January, they just drop off a cliff. So you have to you have to have some kind of reliable mechanism for adjusting for the various points in the year. But yeah, I guess that that's one place they put out a weekly report, 
with a leading indicator on it. Um, but yeah, most often I just pick up the phone to brokers and listen to what they're telling me, especially those in Sydney and Melbourne, because uh, that, that's the bulk of the Aussie market. So what yeah, are people I mean, coming to you for, definitely Chris? A, uh, so pre-approvals, um, we had a lot of pre-approvals and we still got a lot of people who are pre-approved. Um, and a lot of the reason they were pre-approved and they haven't been able to buy is just because of just how competitive it's been out there, right, and how fast the market's moving and how they're, you know, it's just the difficulties of buying in the market when it's hot. And it was hot till, you know, three weeks ago. Three weeks ago. <laughs> so, um, you know, we a, we had a lot of people wanting to enter, not enough properties. That's what's causing prices to rise. But if I go through my pre-approvals now, very few of those uh, have got the confidence to kind of push ahead. Um, and we're not really – there's still people thinking this is an opportunity, but I would say that most mortgage brokers are definitely looking at their existing customers um, and getting new customers and trying to save them money on their mortgages. Um, and so if they're busier than ever – I think AFG, which is one of the bigger broking groups, I'm not licensed through them, but they every month release a report for their thousands of brokers um, – and it's going to be interesting to see what happens over the next three months with their brokers because they're, you know, it's a good litmus test, um, and you'll see a real drop off in purchases and a massive spike in refinances. Um, the other thing is banks are ridiculously busy because a lot of their processes are offshored, and they um, shut. Have, yeah, and they're shut exactly. So A and Z um, haven't have got off, offshored their whole back office to India. Now India shut down for twenty one days. You can't leave your house. Um, so how are they going to get to work? And a lot of businesses aren't made, um, you know, because of IT sort of security issues. You know, you don't really want all your offshore staff working at home um, with, you know, very sensitive information. So a lot of it's actually you've got to rock up and use our computers. So, you know, I think that's another problem the banks are having with applications is that they haven't actually got their back offices sorted. And. Another question I had for you there, Pete, was you talk about the Aussie dollar looks like it's going to go to its lowest rate ever. Uh, well, it was only floated in the 80s, right? But um, why is that? If America is going to be so slammed and, and already are so slammed, I mean, you've seen they've got more cases than any other country. Um, you've got less people than China and they had a head start. They had warning. Um and it looks like one of the steepest curves in terms of um, diagnosis for the um, coronavirus. So, and they're not, you know, people are still on holidays in Florida and everything that we've been talking about. So they don't look like they're taking it too seriously in terms of um, social distancing and, and those proactive measures to stop the the um, spread of the virus. But they are chucking what tr- a trillion dollars or three trillion dollars or whatever the stimulus package was mm. into the economy. Why is the Australian dollar going to suffer so much in that? scenario in in this environment yeah well we often talk about australia as the the lucky country whether people are being sarcastic or or otherwise but in this in the sense of currency australia has been very lucky in that the Aussie dollar has tended to be almost like a proxy for global growth because uh, we're, we're essentially a commodity exporting country now it's a good question why why would the u.s dollar be strong at a time when their economy is floundering it's essentially because the u.s dollar is the global reserve currency so in times of crisis people they tend to seek refuge in perceived safe harbors so the u.s dollar is still the king Uh, whether that continues forever nobody knows but at the moment that's the case so if we go into a slowdown we've got this natural rebalancing mechanism where the Aussie dollar has been down at, what, 55 cents through this cycle. 
And of course, a lot of our exports are denominated in US dollars. So it's a real win for Australia. Uh, the value of our iron ore, coal, LNG exports, and our other exports as well, often denominated in US dollars. So it's a real benefit in terms of revenue. And that's why um, there's a lot of hope that uh, China maybe can have a V-shaped recovery and we can benefit from that. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, interestingly, from a global point of view, uh, whether by design or by accident, it looks to me like um, China over the next five, 10 years could emerge as the, the global economic powerhouse. And America, you know, is really struggling. The amount of government debt that they're having to uh, issue and um, the amount of, uh, well, the Fed's balance sheet is exploding higher. Uh, but they, they've got real challenges in the US now. So yeah, there's a, an awful lot going on in real time that's very interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think Trump's potentially not going to get re-elected if he's uh, been a bit late to the party, which it seems, um, but I don't know. We'll have to see there. I mean, in terms of being a buyer's agent, Pete, um, two things. One, um, what's happening in Brisbane per se, you know, and how's that market performing, I guess, prior to this and then also, I guess, now? And what sort of strategies are you using to help people that are still keen to buy um, and how how's, how's things changed? Yeah, well, I guess, I mean, some things changed for us, but I guess in, in a sense, we, we only follow one strategy at all times anyway. But uh, certainly the, the number of people at open homes really dropped off. It was running hot at the beginning of the year. And I suppose this is you know, the limitations of forecasting. If you think back only to January, February, people were predicting big things for, for the market. Um, the Reserve Bank was forecasting unemployment heading to 4% and so on. And then suddenly you get this uh, black swan event and everything changes. Uh, so I guess we're looking at it, um, as you said, a lot of people are more cautious now and they, they don't want to, they certainly don't want to overpay. But I guess, um, you know, the contrarian in me says, well, these opportunities only come round every so often uh, to buy without competition. So we'll just be focusing on the blue chip, the highest quality assets we can find and just going in with low offers at a time when there's no competition. But uh, yeah, for sure, the number of people at open homes really dropped off uh, in the past couple of weeks. So you can still have open homes up there? Well, I guess, yeah, this is changing in, as we speak in real time. So until a week ago, yes, but uh, now um, I think the, the government advice is shifting towards, well, you shouldn't really, um, unless you've got a very good reason, you shouldn't be um, sort of leaving the house. So you can still have one-to-one -one inspections. Uh, that was the most recent advice. But uh, so opens won't happen now and certainly auctions won't, except maybe digitally. But yeah, I mean, this is a rolling advice. Queensland seems to be a little bit behind New South Wales. I think possibly simply because we haven't had that many cases in Queensland except for one cluster at Noosa. Uh, so, but I, I yeah, keep so from that, Pete. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, it's, we, a, it's, a, it's a long story. There was one restaurant that had a big, a big outbreak, but um, I, I guess we're probably just a couple of weeks behind, and we'll probably move in the same direction. So it'll become very difficult to transact um, mm. potentially. So let's see what happens. Although I so think Pete, you had a, a Ruby Princess event, you know, like we had a bunch of people, infected people, getting off a. Of cruise ship that, yeah that, you can uh, keep the cruise ships down there if you like yeah <laughs> that gave new south wales a head start on uh, on diagnoses well, you are um, building a big port aren't you pete in brisbane i'm yeah, reminded that that's new, one of your infrastructure projects in brisbane is yeah, this new port new well, cruise terminal it should have been finished actually six months ago it, it looks the the planned opening was later this year but 
I mean, the cruise industry is one of those that's going to be tremendously hard hit. So uh, how how quickly that bounces back, who knows? How are the baby boomers going to go on holidays? I mean, they're going to... It's not just oh. the baby boomers. It's the it's your demographic, Chris. They've all been taking their kids on them because you know they get free babysitting and they get to swan around by some floating pool carrying a cocktail all day long. Well, the kids. Well, I've never been on a cruise, but anyway, leave that argument for another idea. day. <laughs> hey, I mean, I get a lot of clients who, um, you know, they're thinking about buying an investment property. Let's say they live in Sydney or Melbourne or. Um, or they've already bought an investment property in Brisbane because um, affordability, um, et cetera. And, you know, I think a lot of people go up there and they take their Sydney uh, mentality and they think it's so cheap and they go and buy stuff up there. What's the quality assets in Brisbane from an investment point of view um, and what don't you buy up there? Yeah, I think we might have even touched on this in episode 24 or whichever one it was. It is yeah, so the, the the scarce commodity in Brisbane property is just well located land in good school zones. I think if you go towards uh, high rise apartments or medium density stock that's miles away from the city, I I just don't they, 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 those property types just haven't performed. And I I guess due to the overbuilding in recent years, there's been no growth really for ten or twelve years. Uh, the, yeah. the type of stock that does well. Houses in blue chip areas, the 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 new farms, Balimbas, uh, Hawthorne, those kind of areas, Tenerife. Um, now, if, if your budget doesn't stretch to those, I guess the next uh, the next tier is really the, the inner five k suburbs, uh, because it's just simple geometry. There's there's a, a limit to how much uh, land there can ever be within five k's of a, a CBD. So if you can get into good school zones. Um, obviously flood-free blocks in Brisbane. Uh, you want to be ideally close to some form of transport, such as train. Uh, yeah. and, and just, you know, I'd say 90% of it is common sense. You know, the kind of areas where families uh, being the main uh, buying demographic uh, yeah. want to want to live and want to buy because that's how, that's how prices go up. I, I think um, Queensland has a long and checkered history of people making bad investment decisions, usually you know, holiday apartments or um, <laughs> the type of stock which might suit a more mature capital city like London or Sydney. Uh, but really in Brisbane, it's, it's the well-located blocks of land. That's where the growth is. Yeah, yeah the I think a lot of investors buy 20 yeah. from the city in Brisbane and think, well, you know, 20 from the C- Sydney CBD is, you know, still pretty close, like, or it's still pretty close in Melbourne, like, it's a, you know, there just isn't that pressure cooker effect in Brisbane. So if you're going to buy something that's scarce, you've got to get close to the CBD, you know, in that kind of 5K ring, totally. ideally. Um, and I just think that's a big mistake people do is, you know, they, oh, I bought a house, it's only 12K from the city in Brisbane. Well, 12K is still a long way, I think, you know. Um, it's not like uh, in Sydney, it's still pretty close to the city. No, and in fact, you, you, you're bang on because literally when you go past uh, 10 kilometres to the northwest or to the southwest, there there is heaps and heaps of land that could be released, built on, developed. Uh, it's, it's really, uh, it's, it's a sort of 10k radius is about as far as you would want to go. So I guess Oxley to the southwest, Capera to the northwest, that, that kind of radius. There are some suburbs on the north side a bit further out that you might consider, but really, um, yeah, all of the demand is heavily focused on that inner 10k and the, the closer in you can get the better really for the budget 
So interestingly enough, I mean, obviously in those areas are very owner-occupier uh, driven, right? So not investor driven. And when you get further out, you, you've got lots of investors that have been buying these properties often, you know, from Sydney or Melbourne. And now you've got a situation where you can't get into Queensland unless you are from there. So the borders are shut. So, um, you know, you've got the sight unseen buyer, which has been a bit of an issue in certain areas of Brisbane, uh, certainly southeast Queensland as well, with a lot of uh, southern investors totally. buying sight unseen. And now I guess, you know, I think sight unseen is a horrific way to buy a property full stop, but particularly in these cases. So are you still seeing that... Um, um, and, and, of course, any price growth that it comes in those areas is usually because you've got a flood of investors from interstate. So there's nothing intrinsic about those areas that mean uh, they're going to experience any good growth. Um, are you seeing that as dried up at the minute or is it not sort of under your radar, that type of activity? Uh, well, I guess probably the three of us are all on the same page in that regard. So I don't, I don't operate in that space and never have. But obviously, what happens is from time to time, people phone me up and say, "Oh, I'm, I'm thinking about going with this property group," and uh, you know, almost before they've told me, you know, I can I can second guess what the story is going to be. It's going to be, well, we found this block and we can subdivide it, and you can have a small house and you get good tax benefits, and because they the 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 last thing they disclose is the location and it's nearly always, as Chris said, you know, it's miles out, but 30 Ks from the city in areas where the land might be, you know, it's, it's almost worthless, you know, that, that kind of property. And uh, of course the, the land is what really does the heavy lifting for you in real estate. And if, if the land value is under a hundred thousand dollars, you know, even if you have a boom in land prices, it's just not going to move the dial. So, but people don't, uh, you know, as, you, as Chris said, they probably look at it through, a Sydney or Melbourne lens and they think, well, the price doesn't sound too bad, but you just end up with low quality stock miles from anywhere uh, and people buy it. And then, you know, 10 or 15 years later, they realize it's not worth what they paid and the cycle continues, unfortunately. It's really hard, yeah, I mean, some it? of the big ones I've seen is Ipswich. I mean, lots of plays around that. Um, obviously, the whole Logan area has been pushed with these duplexes um, and, you know, house and land packages and, um, Redback Plains is a really another popular one that I see spruiked all the time. And um, you know, when you look at the map, as soon as you throw Brisbane on a satellite, it hits you. You know, I send it to clients and say, look at all that land. Um, and people realise pretty quickly that it's not scarce. Um, I think another thing I've seen interesting is a lot of uh, buyers agents have gone down this commercial, it's higher yield. Um, you know, I'm sure we've all seen sort of, uh, you know, property experts or whatever you want to call it, um, pushing, you know, commercial property. Um, and, you know, you've got to say all the risks of a commercial. That's the one of the biggest assets that will be smashed in a, this kind of recession, right? You know, if mm. you can't get a tenant or your tenant negotiates out, um, it's hard to kind of, you know, put your rents up if, ever, if there's lots of other places for rent in a town. Um, and so I think a lot of those people who have gone down the commercial route because there's been a lot of property people saying that. Um, are going to be feeling a lot of pain. Yeah, I reckon that, you know, I've had first-hand experience of clients saying to me, well, you know, we bought this commercial property in Logan or Brindley or wherever it was, yeah. you know, before the financial crisis and they, they wouldn't get their money back today and that's 15 years. Um, so you know, commercial property doesn't behave in the same way as resi. You know, there's, there's less demand for it. Um, it's very niche. There's a lot of risks and, you know, just in investing in general, and I think uh, Veronica said this in our previous episode, is that a high yield usually represents a risk of some sort. 
it's you may not know what the risk is but that's that's what a high yeah. yield is you know you don't get there's no free lunches in investing if the yield <laughs> is 10 or 15 percent then you know you can get that on residential property in britain but it usually means um houses of multiple occupancy or you know some kind of or commercial property or whatever it is, it, it's it's not a free lunch. No. I mean, some of the houses in the north of England are pretty cheap. Where you're from, Pete? Yeah, that's right. And you can you can get fifteen percent. I think we said this on the on the other episode. But you know that fifteen percent probably means you have six tenants and they're changing weekly. So it's probably ten percent net. And then you've got all the damage and vacancies and you know you you find that there's no free lunch when people talk about a high yield. We were talking about earlier uh, about second homes and certainly when you've got an economic shock such as a GFC, for instance, uh, the second home is the first one to go. And so I guess what leads up to owning a second home is a period of uh, prosperity where you feel like, oh, look, you know, I'm going to reward myself now. I'm going to buy myself a weekender and um, and I can afford it because life's good. And and I remember after the GFC, you know, up in Palm Beach or the, the Northern Beaches, Avalon, that sort of area in Sydney, every second house pretty much had a for sale sign on it and those a lot of those signs stayed there for years and it was many many years before you actually started seeing a normal amount of for sale signs rather than this sort of second house syndrome um and i i guess even the fact that you're sort of you know talking about you know people have their guard has dropped for a period of time they remember they remember that risk they remember the pain of that they remember the economic costs of that um and then you know life goes on oh, it's time to buy a holiday home again so maybe uh that will be interesting to see what that sector of the market does uh following this coronavirus uh crisis yeah I, 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 as you know veronica used to live in sydney for a dozen years or so and i, I remember exactly what you were saying when uh, we used to holiday on the south coast as often as we could and you drive down towards Wollongong and beyond and it, it, as you said it was literally every second house was for sale but the trouble is in that kind of environment there are very few buyers around and the stock yeah. just sits there forever and uh, it normalized eventually but it took it took years and uh, yeah that's that's why when you when it comes to property investing you really need to stick to the employment hubs you know that's that's where people will always need to live and close to the schools, close to the jobs. Uh, if you go into holiday locations, uh, they do well on the way up, but then the, the downturns can be brutal, just like they saw in the US, you know, in Florida and places like that. Yeah, it's yeah. interesting as well, though, that people who have, um, you know, let's say they've got, you know, people buying the holiday home might be, say, living in the more premium suburbs of, say, the capital city. Though. They've got other assets that they can lean on if things get tough, right? Um and so if, if they, you know, maybe they've got a small share portfolio or other assets. So if they do lose their job or, you know, they haven't got any income in their home, maybe they've got really good growth on their property. They've got this kind of payment holiday. They've got 2% interest rates. And if things get really tough, that's when they go and start fire selling all their other assets and they hold on to their home. I think a lot of people in, say, the middle and outer rings, because they're purchased in the you know, last 10 to 20 years or even in the last five years, a lot of them have got very high debt and very little other assets. Um, and so, you know, when, when if things do get bad, a lot of them, and they haven't got a job and they can't afford their mortgage and um, they can't even afford to live, um, then that's when you're going to start to see, I think a lot of them haven't got any other option but to sell their home and then you'll start seeing supply hit. So do you see there's going to be this kind of haves and have-nots sort of scenario kind of playing out, which 
generally happens in every type of recession? Yeah, possibly. I mean, I think a lot of the, the stood down workers are probably in some of the lower socio-demographic areas because of the hits the retail and hospitality and so on. I think uh, one of the things we've seen in Britain through the recessions and Australia too, uh, through the GFC, is that for most people, the family home, you know, the, the preferred um, path is always forbearance. If you, if you can hold on to your place of residence, that's usually the last thing to go for people and um, if they can afford to hold on. Now, a lot of people these days can borrow at 2 to 3% or maybe 35 So, And given that banks will offer mortgage payment holidays, I think there won't be that many forced sellers in the coming six months. Um, now, it's, it, I guess the, the problem will be if it drags on for longer, then that's when you might see the forced selling because if, if, if unemployment rises over six months and then, you know, it's into the double digits. Well, that's that's a challenge. But most people won't look to sell their home in a downturn. That's uh, that's usually true in the property owning countries like Britain and Australia. I, I, you know, yes, you can get the mortgage payment holiday, which you know, let's say the you know, but if you've lost your job, um, yes, you might be getting this fifteen hundred dollars a fortnight from the government now. But that's only that's only seven hundred bucks a week to live off. Um, and, you know, if you've got other debts like car leases and, you know, just living costs are quite expensive here, you could easily see a situation where people become illiquid um, and have to sell. So, you know, I guess it's, it's whether, the, um, you know, in six months' time, if they can't get back into employment, the, the payment holidays goes, the government benefit goes, I guess that's where you're probably going to potentially see four sellers. Yeah, and I, I think um, there, there's very little appetite uh, from certainly from policymakers and I think banks as well to foreclose on people. You know, people really don't want to go down that path. It's highly inefficient for banks. Obviously, borrowers don't want to do it. So, given the unique circumstances that we face, I don't think many people will be forced into that situation. But some people may actually opt to sell. Yeah. I, I think banks would rather give people. Uh, the opportunity just to take a full payment holiday. And we may even see that over the coming weeks that even interest in, isn't capitalised in some cases because um, uh, you, you find that banks really don't want to foreclose on people in the current type of environment because what would they be selling into anyway? Well, that's exactly right. The domino effect then, isn't it? I mean, that, that's just going to – the banks will build a bunch of assets and they'll be stuck with the the the, the responsibility of actually trying to offload them to – recoup money that's not actually going to be a good environment for any ball the situation for anybody is it no basically so uh, <laughs> in, in a word <laughs> so no so it's not just like they're just trying to save the bacon of individual homeowners this is actually that they don't want to be stuck with an absolute avalanche of stock that has to be sold at right. bargain prices you know exactly. that's not going to work exactly to right. it's, um, I, think, I think people have understood that you know we, we talked about this a couple of years ago with the interest only cliff and i had you know, an avalanche of people emailing me about a report that I wrote saying, yeah, this is just like the US uh, subprime crisis. The loans will reset. They'll all, be, they'll all go bust. It's like, well, no, they won't because what incentive has a bank got to actually put people into financial stress? It just doesn't serve any purpose. And uh, as it transpired, most people had the buffers and life continued. Um, so hopefully this time around, if uh, – if the government and the, the Reserve Bank can build that bridge to the other side, uh, we'll look back on it as a blip. But uh, at the moment, uh, things are moving pretty quickly. It's pretty interesting that around the interest only because, 
you're right. Like a lot of that was a bit of talk around that, but and then you had the Royal Commission happening with APRA and ASIC, and no one understood around responsible lending. Um, but then that all just got kind of thrown out the the window, um, and it was back to business with the banks and interest only were getting extended, and then people could able easily able to refinance again because it got relaxed. Um, and then all the rates on interest only loans are. You know, you can get three years investor interest only right now for 2.69%. So, you know, for investors, it's 2.7% for the next three years interest only. So, um, you know, that's allowed a lot of investors just to refinance and protect themselves. Every week we hear incredible stories of the dumb things property buyers do. Dumb things that end up costing a whole lot of money and or a whole lot of stress. Mistakes that can be avoided. Please, Pete, can you give us an example of a property dumbo? We can all learn what not to do from these stories. Okay, well, one of the things you see in Brisbane uh, far too often is people having illegal tenancies. So they, they buy properties um, that might be uh, family appropriate, but then, uh, and you see this all the time, properties that aren't legal height downstairs and they put in maybe two or three different tenants uh, they might not be fire compliant and yeah for sure in the short term there's a benefit to landlords doing that in terms of increasing the rental income but if you're if you're not compliant um, the risks that you're taking on there if there's a fire or some kind of other hazard um, we've, we've seen a plenty of this in recent years with people trying to bump up the yields and uh, it's just not worth it <laughs> Oh dear, yet another reason that buying property with yield in mind only is a crazy idea. Totally. <laughs> I think it was um, Ed Fennon or whatever, I think is his name, he's the one, he's uh, CEO of UCO, don't know if he's still doing that, but he had that exact same story. I think he bought a house thinking that he could rent out downstairs and found out he couldn't rent it and um, yeah, because it wasn't legal, I think, from memory. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and then he could only rent upstairs and then his yield went from, you know, eight to four percent, and that's what he was buying it on. Uh, and so now he's just got a house. I think it was in Coffs Harbour or something. That it is more like it was. Yeah, an explosion of that sort of thing in Britain with that the houses of multiple occupancy. Uh, but the, the problem is, it can be a one-way street or a bit of a dead end because at the end, you know, when you come to offload that property at the end of your investment, you, you can only really sell that type of property to another investor. And yeah. it's just a very thin market. So, you, yes, the yields can be all right, but uh, the capital growth is seriously questionable and uh, there's a lot of headaches that go with it as well. I get that's a really good point just around granny flats actually because um, that's what people do is, right, they get these houses and, it's you know, they build a granny flat out the back and, you know, they're renting out, got double income. Then their life changes three years later and they go, actually, I know we, we need that money. Um, we have to sell that property and then they can only sell it to, you know, other investors or families that want to need that in extra income stream, which, you know, the family that wants the backyard for the kids doesn't want the granny flats. So you completely ruled yourself out of a, probably the number one demographic that you want to want your home, um, you know, for that short-term potential yield that's arguably not even that much. Exactly right. Well, on that note, thank you so much, Pete, for your time. Pleasure, guys. Yeah, I'm, I'm housebound at the moment in Noosa, so uh, thankfully we have a pool and uh, the kids are happy so far, but if this drags on for a few months, it could be challenging. <laughs> yeah, and stay off the golf course, mate. <laughs> Get a, put, dig a hole in your backyard and do some practice your putting. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks very much for your time. Thanks, guys. Cheers. Cool. Cheers, mate. Thanks, mate. 
We want to make you a better elephant rider. So this week's elephant rider training is... So, you know, one of the things that the banks have done to support the property market, probably in partnership with the government, to be honest, is um, allow mortgage holders to put payment holidays. Now, you know, up to, potentially up to six months, a lot of them as well. Um, and I just got an email, you know, half an hour ago while I was on this podcast actually uh, with a client getting a payment holiday approved at, say, Macquarie. But um, some banks are doing a lot of due diligence around it, making sure you have to prove that you've, you know, been affected. But some are just saying if you need it, you can have it. Now, personally, um, it's it's not a bad thing to do if you can get it because what you'll do is you'll save potentially six months of mortgage repayments coming out of your cash flow. Now, if that allows you to still survive, if you have lost your job and you do need it, then and it stops you from having to sell your asset, then it's a huge win because when you do get another job, you're going to be fine. If you still have a job and you don't need it but you get it, um, that's not a reason to go and spend that money. That's not free money. You'll be accruing additional you know, debt every month that you don't pay that. And let's say it's um, $5,000 a month is your repayment. Um, in six months' time, you've got 30 grand more debt. So if your mortgage was a million dollars, now your mortgage is a million and 30. But the good thing about these payment holidays is you can then pay that million and 30 off over the next 28 years or whatever you've got left in your mortgage. So, um, or, you know, uh, what they'll do is just extend that potentially another six months is what they're talking about as well. So the key thing is it's not money that you're getting for free. You're still going to accrue that debt, but you're also going to save that cash flow. So all things being equal, in that scenario, you should have 30 grand more buffer um, in six months' time and 30 grand more debt. So I personally think that's a massive win. The problem you'll have is when you spend that money thinking it's free money. Um, so if you can get a payment holiday, um, and even if you don't need it, personally, I would go and get it. It doesn't affect your credit rating. Um, but some banks are asking about it if you're looking to borrow more money. So if, for example, you're thinking about buying an investment property, just be a little bit careful here because you could shoot yourself in the foot because you just went and got a payment holiday on your home and now you're looking to go and buy an investment property and the, the bank might say, hang on a sec, why did you get that payment holiday? So... You just got to be careful about that risk, which people haven't thought through. Please join us for our next episode when I'm interviewing Chris. Now, why am I interviewing Chris? Because I'm curious to understand what's going on with some of my clients. Clients who have traditionally dealt directly with banks are finding some unexpected hurdles in their finance approval. And I want to understand why that is happening and really what are the benefits of using a broker rather than dealing directly with a bank. There's some great insights in this and a lot of things that I didn't know. So please tune in. Don't forget we're on all the social channels. We're on Facebook, we're on LinkedIn, we're on Twitter. Or you can connect with us on theelephantintheroom.com.au. The links are all there for you. Please connect and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. Until next week, don't be a dumbo. Now remember, everything we talked about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent who will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances with a statement of advice.